Let's open our Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter. I want to begin reading with verse 23. Luke 23, 23. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, the Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bury it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. This will be our text. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots, and the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Look back in verse 33. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The place called Calvary. Give you some introduction and then try to point out some things about this passage of Scripture. When we get into the meat of the message, I'd like to concentrate on the last part of it, on the pain and the, uh, the pardon and the promise that we find in this message. But right now, let me give you some things. Many places of historical significance we have in our own nation. Some remember in history talking about Valley Forge and Bunker Hill. We think of the Alamo. But here's a place, I believe, that was seen thousands of years before of Abraham, called the Mount of the Lord in Genesis 22 and verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. 
as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. If you go back and read the context, you'll find that he was sent to the land of Moriah where he was to find the place that God had designated for him to offer up uh, Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. And God found a substitute for Isaac there. And there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns and he offered him up in the place instead of Isaac. And it was a test of Abraham's faith. We could go back and go into the historical aspect of what we find there. But it was called then the Mount of the Lord. But in Matthew 27 and 33, in Mark 15 verse 22, it speaks of this same place called Golgotha. And that is a Hebrew word, Golgotha. I have in my study a little, uh, a little rock that Brother Wendell put on a board for me, a little uh, token of Golgotha. He brought back from the Holy Land. It's in my study. Golgotha is a Hebrew word, but Calvary. John 19 verse 17 tells us that Golgotha means in the Hebrew the place of a skull. They say it resembles a skull. Some say that there were many skulls found there due to the great number of executions, but we do not know about that. We know that Calvary means a head. It denotes a skull. Luke 23:33 says the place is called Calvary. And this is the Greek or Latin equivalent of Golgotha. And as far as we know, before the crucifixion, that hill was not called Calvary, but was always called and known as the place of a skull. In fact, if you'll look in your, probably in your uh, concordance, you'll find that there's only one place that this word is used, and it's right here, Calvary. It was always known as the place of a skull. So Calvary is a unique word. And this spot was the center of all things. The place called Calvary. Here there are two eternities that meet. This is the center of eternity past and then eternity in the future. Ancient history. The streams of ancient history take their rise. Converge here. And the rivers of modern history rises from that point. The eyes of the patriarchs and the prophets strain forward to Calvary. In 1 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11, it says, They were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify beforehand what the sufferings of Christ, we're talking about the prophets, and the glory that should follow. They were searching and wondering what manner of time. And this place called Calvary fulfilled what they were searching for. Their eyes strained forward to Calvary. All the blood sacrifices from Adam to the cross pointed forth in figure and type and symbol to Calvary. The seeker of truth who has explored the realms of knowledge comes to Calvary. And he finds that here's knowledge he cannot really able, he's not really able to penetrate in the depth of it. The weary heart of man in search of perfect sympathy and love at last arrives at Calvary. And there he finds it because it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Many eyes are turned to Calvary on this Lord's day. Many are on the beds of sickness and chambers of death. They find their consolation by looking to Calvary. It reminds me of where we should go. Remember one time that there were certain followers of Jesus that turned away and 
were walking away from him. And Jesus turned to Peter and the apostles. He said, Will ye also go away? And the answer was, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Where are we going to go? Let's consider this place called Calvary this morning in our message. Calvary is a place of a lot of things that we might find. First of all, let's notice that it's a place of guilt. There were, verse 32, there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. Two other. Notice how it's stated. That means it's simply a place that they consider Jesus guilty. Criminals between two thieves. Jesus was predicted, and he predicted himself that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus predicted that it would be fulfilled, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And I'll get the verse later on. But it's a place of guilt in our present text in Luke 23, verse 32. It says there were also two other male factors led with him. He was hung between two thieves. And Isaiah predicts that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And they counted it as if he were numbered with the transgressors. And the Bible tells us, John 18, verse 30, They answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. They considered him as a criminal. So it's a place of guilt. And it's a place of compassion, if you'll notice the context, that Jesus cried out and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had compassion on not only those that were around him, but those that were responsible for putting him to death. And even on the way to Calvary, if you notice verse 28, Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. He had compassion on those that were weeping for him. It's a place also of derision. If you notice the people, the rulers with them, it's verse 35, derided him saying, He saved others, let him save himself. It's a place of derision. And we find down in verse uh, 38 that it's a place of testimony. It says, A superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. We find that this is a testimony. Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Greek was understood by all in that day. It was a common tongue of that day. Hebrew was the native tongue, historical national language of the Jews. In Latin, the official language, speaking of legality. If we read on down, we find it's a place of salvation for the repentant thief. The first trophy of blood redemption. This dying thief was reconciled to God. Christ lifted him up from the cross to salvation and to glory. This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. We'll find on down that it was a place of miracles. The sun was darkened in the middle of the day. The, the Bible says the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to bottom. You read in Matthew's Gospels that the earth did quake and graves were opened when Jesus died on the cross. place of miracles. sun was hidden. There was darkness. There was an earthquake. Graves were opened. And this veil of the temple, which was 60 feet high, and they say it was about 60 about six inches thick in bulk. And from what I've read, that two teams of oxen heading in the opposite direction could not rend that veil. Man certainly couldn't do it. And that's why it says it was rent from the top to the bottom, proving 60 feet high that it was God that 
rent that veil in the temple in order to show us a way into the presence of God because that's where the high priest went once a year into God's presence to make atonement for each and every one. We know that Jesus died on the cross, therefore it was a place of death. We could give you things about this place. I'd like to really concentrate upon three things. It's a place of pain and pardon and promise. A place of pain. The first of these three things. The pain that Jesus Christ endured, no man has ever endured. You say, well, there's been a lot of people treated worse than he. But you have to consider who he was to understand the pain he endured. He was the holy, the only begotten Son of God, who did no sin, who knew no sin, and in him was no sin. If you would compare an infant, an innocent baby, and the pain that's afflicted upon an innocent baby, and then compare that to one that you have a hardened soldier, he could endure a lot more pain and would endure a lot more pain. And we would say that he's able to endure injury and pain, but you inflict the same wounds of pain upon an innocent child, and you can see the difference in contrasting how it would be or comparing it. So Jesus was different than man in the sense that he was completely innocent. He had nothing within his nature to need to be uh, have infliction of wound or pain or suffering. And we have to realize that he was the only begotten Son of God. And therefore, the pain to him that he suffered should be, in our minds, magnified much more than any one of us. Because we deserve judgment. As one of the thieves said, we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. There's all kinds of pain that Jesus suffered. The pain of misunderstanding. He was who was God manifest in the flesh was accused of blasphemy. In Matthew 26, verse 65, it says, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. He who was the Son of God was accused He who was God manifest in the flesh. That was the accusation leveled against him. So he was definitely misunderstood. Not only the misunderstanding of the fact that of his Godhead, concerning his Godhead and his authority was questioned from time to time. But he was crucified as a traitor against the Roman Empire. He who was the only king and the king of the Jews. Remember when they came in Matthew's Gospel chapter 2? And the wise men came and says, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And we find in the book of Revelation, it tells us when he's coming again, he will be seen and known as king of kings and lord of lords. We know that he is the creator, the creator of all creation. When we think of the fact, you know, when you look at your own individual person, did you know the Bible tells us that God made man? That He made us. It tells us what we're doing here. And it tells us where we're going. It's the only book in the world. And the only promise in the world we have is through Jesus. For He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. So it tells us why God made us. What we're doing here. And how we can have heaven. It's the only 
thing in the world that will explain this to us. He's the great sovereign and the sovereign of this great universe. He's the preserver of all things because the Bible says by him all things consist. And yet he suffered the pain of being misunderstood as to his person, as to his Godhead, as to his mission. The pain of loneliness is another thing. The Bible tells us he was despised and rejected of men. When we figure in Gethsemane, remember the loneliness of Jesus in Gethsemane before he was crucified. And there he took with him three choice disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they fell asleep. And he says, could you not watch with me one hour? He says, now is my soul sorrowful, even unto death. And when he came back, he found them asleep each and every time. The loneliness that he endured. When we think of loneliness in our own uh, realm, it's one of the hardest heartaches for people to endure today when they're left all alone. Some people have put in the care center and left all alone. No family, no friends, no one except at the mercy of whoever's there. Some are left alone for other reasons and in other ways. But we find that the pain of loneliness is a terrible pain to endure. How few did remain at the cross even when he was crucified. Four women and one man. The disciples, for fear of whatever reason, forsook him and fled, the Bible says. His brethren were nowhere to be found. That's why we need fellowship in the church. We need to be with one another that we will not be left alone. How we need to stand with each other and others to stand by us. When you have someone that will stand by you. Remember I used to tell you about a song that I loved when I first started preaching and had all the opposition and all the heartaches of a young preacher. I used to sing that song song when the storms of life are raging stand by me in the midst of tribulation stand by me when the world is tossing me like a ship upon the sea thou that rulest winds and waters stand by me if we have someone to stand by us i'm thankful that all my life i've had my and that seems like all my life and my dear wife to stand by me i can't remember a time i didn't have her hardly But it's good to have someone that will stand by you. In thick or thin, whatever comes. Again, we find that uh, he hung between heaven and earth. And he seemed to be, he felt forsaken. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we know for a moment's time that it seemed that he was left alone. That's a pain of loneliness. And that was for you and I because he was suffering and bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. And so loneliness is when it seems that God even is not there. And he knew what it was to feel that God was not even there. And he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We can be forsaken of almost anyone and anything and any person other than feel that God has left us to ourselves and to uh, whatever destiny we might have before us. And he was feeling that same forsakenness when he died for your sins and mine on the cross of Calvary. And then the physical pain, the torture of the body that he endured in the crucifixion. We know that from uh, the second, uh, we know from the record, by the way, that Jesus was already physically completely exhausted, that he had been without food and without drink for a long period of time that he had been smitten and buffeted, and that he had been 
crowned, scourged and stripped and crowned with a crown of thorns. He had been stripped of his clothing and he was naked before the elements. And he was now nailed to the rugged cross. There they crucified him, it says. I love that song that Shirley sang. God built a bridge to heaven on that old rugged cross. All of these things. Is not this enough? Is not this enough to, for any hardened sinner to be broken hearted and to realize that Jesus did all this for him, that he might be saved? The Bible says he died for our sins according to the Scripture. The pain of the fearful thought of becoming a sin for every one of us. That was great pain. The Bible says he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was our sin bearer and our sin substitute. The Bible says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Bible says that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That means the Lord hath made to meet on Christ in a substitutionary way. In the Old Testament, to understand what we're talking about, the high priest would come in the day of, on the Day of Atonement and lay his hands upon the head of a goat. One would be sacrificed and the bloodshed. There were two goats that made up the offering on the Day of Atonement. And he would lay his hands upon the head of that goat that was alive. And he would confess all the sins and all the iniquities of all the children of Israel. And by implication, place them upon the head of this goat. One would be killed and the blood would be shed. And the other one that we're talking about, the live goat, would be taken into the wilderness by the hands of a fit man, it says, or a qualified person, and let go in the wilderness. And this man would return, and both of those goats making up one sacrifice, shedding of blood, and also bearing our sins away into a land of forgetfulness, so that the people would feel that and know that their sins were taken away, completely uh, forgotten, because this goat would be led away and let loose in the wilderness, never to be found. And that's what it means when it says, Behold the Lamb, listen carefully, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away, beareth away the sins of the world, so that He's taken our sins as far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us says that sins and iniquities will I remember no more. They're blotted out as a thick cloud, and they're gone to a place of that our sins will never be brought again. And the Lord hath laid on him, Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Lord hath placed on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's where Jesus was our substitute and our sin bearer. And it was on Calvary that God's love was manifested thus, was revealed and made known. It was on Calvary that His love was proven by sacrifice. You know, someone says, well, how do I know you love me? Well, what you, what you do proves it. What Jesus did proves His love. That's how father or mother proves, shows and proves their love. Their love is evident to their children. When the mother's willing to bring the child into the world in pain and suffering. And when she's willing to, to sit up in the middle of the night and take care of it when it's uh, sick or whatever 
attend to its needs. When a father will get out in the inclement weather and uh, try to work with his hands and make a living in spite of all the difficulties and heartaches and troubles and problems to bring bread and food for the family and to pay the bills. That's a proof of love. If you're lazy and won't do anything, if you just don't have any concern about giving up some of yourself for others, that's not very much proof of love, is it? But it's how you give yourself in relation to someone else is a proof of your love. And the Lord loved us enough that He did something about it. And on Calvary, Jesus took the curse of the sin of the law. He's redeemed us from its penalty. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on the tree. It's on Calvary that He made provision for our salvation in His finished work. Remember at one time He says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. All this is a proof of Christ's love for us and the pain He suffered. Okay, we said there we'd give you three things. The place of pain, the place of pardon, and the place of promise. Now, the second thought is it's not only a place of pain and the pain that Jesus suffered in order to do this for us, but Calvary is a place of pardon. Not only pain, not only suffering, it was the birthplace of our pardon. It was the source of our pardon. Not even God will forgive us of our sins except through His Son. God is a merciful God and a loving God. We had in our Sunday school this morning that God is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And the reason He, he is justified in, in forgiving us of our sins is because the price was paid for the penalty of our sins. And God didn't just look down upon you and I as wicked and sinful people and say, I'm just going to forget all about it. No. The penalty had to be paid, and Jesus paid the price. And the Bible says you're bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So He bought and paid for us on the cross of Calvary when He said it is finished. The birthplace of pardon. It was on Calvary that Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was on Calvary that Jesus offered pardon to the repentant thief and said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was on Calvary that the way of heaven was open for every believing sinner who would repent and turn to God. Our sins are not forgiven us primarily because we repent. Someone says, If I repent, my sins are forgiven. Or confess, or baptize, or join the church, or whatever. But because Jesus made provision for it, and therefore when we do repent, we can receive His salvation. Our repentance, what I'm trying to say is, our repentance doesn't merit salvation. Our repentance is only the channel and the means, and our faith is only the means that brings us to the Lord. To accept His salvation that He has provided. The Bible says, in having made peace through the blood of His cross. He made the peace for us, and we accept the peace He's provided by faith and by repentance and faith. And our, the sins of everyone will be forgiven when they trust Jesus, who is the redemption for our sins, who has made redemption for our sins. And it's all for the sake of what? What's happened on Calvary's cross. When He said it is finished. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This place of pardon, what does pardon mean? 
Pardon means that I am completely forgiven of all of my sins. It means that I'm justified in the sight of a holy God. It means that I am accepted in the Beloved. The Bible says we're accepted in the Beloved. And it means that He died on the cross of Calvary, that God Almighty has given us His righteousness. And we have Christ's righteousness by way of substitution. It's given to us. And it means that I'm perfectly fit for heaven now, in spite of what some of you think. It, might, it means that you are perfectly fit for heaven on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. With all of our faults and failures and flaws, it means that you're ready and that He's reserved a place in heaven for you. The Bible says who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God has done all this on Calvary's cross. The last thought of our message is Calvary is a place of promise. Every promise comes to us. By the way of Calvary. The Bible says in Romans 8 verse 32. He that spared not his own son. But delivered him up for us all. We know what that speaks of. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things. All things are given us. On the basis of what Jesus has done for us. You cannot come to God by faith. Except the Lord Jesus Christ. Said I am the way. The truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The fellowship we have is based on the same thing. John 14 tells us that uh, of the comforting power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, in the book of 1 John. You cannot pray to God but by the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? The Bible says that we have boldness to the throne of grace and access by grace into this faith wherein we stand. The right to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. The Bible tells, that in, tells us that in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. It says, Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain, obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And why? Because we have... Not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are. But we have one who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And it says, therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, because he's on the right hand of God for us. And that's the only way you and I have privilege of access, even in prayer, to the Father, is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And through the merits of Christ that we can come boldly. We cannot approach God's throne except through the blood. We cannot, we cannot have salvation except through the blood. We cannot have uh, Him to intercede for us except through what He's already done for us. And the Scripture teaches that. It's a wonderful thing that we realize it. We have the right to enter into the holiest. Remember we told you that when, the, when, the, uh, when Jesus died on the cross that the veil of the temple was rent in the midst from the top to the bottom. This was proving way of access into the presence of God for every believing, repentant sinner. And for you and I, continual access, because it was done away with. That veil was. Now then, you cannot come to God in service except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He says, all authority, all authority is given to me, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. And he says, go ye therefore, because he has the authority to send us. He says, how can they preach except they be sent? 
How can you be a servant unless you're called to serve? And you're only called to serve when you accept Christ. And it's through Christ that your service is acceptable. I want to give you a few things here. First, there's a promise of help to every one of us. And we desperately need that help in these dark days. You know, I can't think of anyone today that doesn't need help in some form or fashion. Every one of us need help of some kind. Every one of us need help. The Bible tells us that we have someone that will help us in time of need. There's no human leader that we're to follow. There's only one who knows the way, who is the way. We used to sing a song, the way of the cross leads home. There's no other way but this. The great leader for you and I is Jesus. He says what? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. Paul said, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Someone said, well, I'm too weak. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That's Philippians 4.19, 4.13. We not only have the promise of help for these things, but we have the promise of hope. Sometimes the condition of the world in our nation, our community, looks dark and looks hopeless. You know, if a person has hope, I think of that little girl, young lady, not a little girl, but we know her that was rescued. The only thing that kept her, I believe, was having a hope that something would happen. And hope came from the most unlikely place at her time. And many of you have heard the story how that this lawyer risked his life, in a sense, in great sense of the word, to get her rescued. That's hope. He says, don't. Don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of it. And I know that we've treated some of the prisoners of war uh, that we have with tenderness and kindness and medical attention and things like that because we do. But it's good to find someone on the other side that will do the same thing, isn't it? Thank God for that. We have hope for our nation and our community in spite of how things look hopeless. Jesus will... Save some out of this ungodly world. When we look at our efforts, sometimes we feel like it's hopeless. But God always has someone that will hear. Our service seems to be hopeless, but the Bible says, In due season we shall reap if we faint not. Some of you here this morning, you have not the hope of eternal life if you have not trusted Jesus. But the Bible tells us that you may have that hope, that blessed hope and promise of heaven. We not only have help and hope, but we have the promise of heaven. Well, I know what the critics say about heaven, but I also know that Jesus promises that He promised the repentant thief, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He promised every one of us that where I am there you may be also. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11 that He was taken up into heaven. And He says, I go in John 14 to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am there you may be also. So someday, when all the darkness and, and the discouragement and the disappointment and the heartaches of this life are in the past, we will be with the Lord in where? In glory, in heaven. If we die before He comes, we'll go to be with Christ. The Bible says to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And so we have the promise either way. Someone has said we'll either go by the clod or by the cloud. So either way, we'll go to be with the Lord. 
And we invite those who, if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, as we 